0: This is Dr. Nicole Tyson, and welcome to this month's JPAg podcast. We'll be joined shortly by Dr. Paula Hillard, the Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of the Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. This month's podcast is highlighting seven wonderful articles from the October edition of the journal. Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Hillard. I'm glad you're here today to talk about our October JPAg issue.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to. It's a great issue. So we can have fun talking about it.
0: It is. And, you know, we're a little bit bit a little bit behind um, talking about the October one, but it's just a big issue. And we had your great uh, presentation from Australia uh, last month. So that was kind of a, a nice one that filled in the space. So we'll do ne- uh, we'll do December next um, and then January and February. So we won't miss any additions. Sounds good. So this month, we were going to just start our podcast off by talking about uh, The Testament, which is the sequel to Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Um, I actually went back and read The Handmaid's Tale since I read it in college and didn't remember very much of it, other than it was very dark and upsetting. And so (laughs) I did reread it, and it was actually hard to read over the holidays because it wasn't very cheerful. Um, But, you know, it's obviously very timely and sure resonates with um, sort of the things of today dealing with. Uh, you know women's freedoms and issues and so uh, I will leave it to you though to kind of review the testament and and see where it left off sure
1: sure so I had read the handmaid's tale years ago and then I'd started watching the series on tv and as you said found it uh, incredibly depressing (laughs) but thought that that I'd take a look at the testaments and uh I I think overall I'm glad I I read it the the both books are are clearly relevant to today's political climate uh, where um, women's reproductive rights are being limited and, and in some parts of the country in some states really being being rescinded. The Handmaid's Tale just goes goes beyond or excuse me the Testaments goes beyond the Handmaid's Tale. I I thought it was, it's very cleverly structured. So we get the viewpoint of a couple of individuals and it took me a while to figure out who was speaking when and where and whose perspective we were hearing. But it becomes clear that one individual is speaking from within the realm of of Gilead, the repressive regime. And and the other is, uh, another is from outside uh, as Canada. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, they are woven together, and, and uh, again, lots of parallels to current politics. Um, I'm not going to say a whole lot more than that or, or give away the, the ending, um, but I thought it was, it was well-crafted. It, it felt like it was, um, it was polished and, and well thought out. It wove things together, and we sort of go back and forth between the two different perspectives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. She is a a really great writer. And I always remembered with The um, Handmaid's Tale that there's just this whole time travel, like you have to kind of reorient yourself now, which am I before all this happened? Am I in it? And is this her perspective? Is this the people she is hanging out with? She's a remarkable storyteller. So I like her delivery. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I recommend it. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, that that's definitely on my to-do list next, but I needed a little reprieve from <laughs> the dark. Uh, distinct, I hear you. Uh, <laughs> um, so we've talked a little bit about making our next book, um, the book called Talking to Strangers. It's Malcolm Gladwell's new book. So I actually just finished it and, and I thought it was really interesting. I always enjoy uh, reading his books and he does podcasts here and there too. So he's very interesting and he's a great storyteller.
1: He is, and I'm excited to read it. I haven't read it, read it or, or uh, downloaded it yet, but I am ready to go.
0: All right. So if you podcast listeners want to read ahead, you can, you can join us. Um, so on to JPEG. So the October edition has just all these great articles. I think it was hard uh, for you and me, too, to narrow down what we want to talk about. So we actually just decided to highlight seven articles, um, You know, some of them really briefly, and to just touch on key points. Um, but I, I think that's what we decided to do. Um, and I know you had said you were really proud of this great.
1: I am very proud of it. I am very proud of it. It's a, it's a very meaty, meaty addition. Um, One one of the uh, first ones I wanted to to really just mention and not say a whole lot more about other than take a look at it, especially if you are teaching and working with residents. And it's the NASPAG position statement updated uh, long curriculum from the Resident Education uh, Committee. And it updates the 2015 document. which addresses really the learning objectives from CREOG, the Council on Resident Education in OBGYN, and the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons and the American Board of uh, Pediatrics. So really designed for use with residents and, and learners and just very, very well done with updated references, et cetera. So, so if you are teaching and and uh, thinking about um, what your residents should be learning then, or if you're a resident, take a look at it and see what, what we would uh, define as the breadth, really, of pediatric and adolescent gynecology. I, I would just encourage you take a
0: look at it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what I've done over the years is initially I, I made sort of paper copies of a lot of these articles and chapters and sort of passed it along from resident to resident. Um, as they were working with me or doing fourth year clerkships and things like that, and then now we you know we have some champion residents, so if you 're one of them listening, um, they 've sort of taken this project on, and we have this great dropbox file of these articles and uh, so it 's really nice to have this useful update um, this one 's an update right from two thousand and fifteen, so it it keeps it going and very, very relevant, which is nice so the article we did want to spend a little time talking about is titled Update on Precocious Puberty in Girls. And I'll actually let you say the author's name since you have met her and have some info about her too. So this is
1: by Dr. Erica Oyster, and she is a pediatric endocrinologist. And I first met her at our NASPAG um, annual clinical and research meeting, and uh, where she talked about premature telarchy. Um, She's at Indiana University. She's on the editorial boards of a number of endocrinology uh, journals. And uh, I always sort of looked at Indiana as as a sister institution to the University of Cincinnati, which is where I was for for 23 years. And uh, um, IU has a a very strong division of adolescent medicine and and, uh, good care of of teens. And uh, I think this
0: is a a really lovely
1: review on an important topic.
0: Yeah, so I think this article does a really remarkable job of just sort of piecing together and simplifying this really complex topic for a lot of OBGYNs and and us in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. It actually somehow turns this endocrine, twisty, complex topic into something that's a lot more simplified. Um, So she really breaks it down nicely, too, talking about differences between Um, central precocious puberty and peripheral precocious puberty, and then the common presentations of premature adrenarche and menarche. Um, In your experience, how do you sort of see these people in your PAG consult service?
1: I think one of the things that I would say is is how many of these girls we see depends a lot on local referral patterns. So in our area here in the Bay Area, I would say most of these girls go to pediatric endocrinology directly. Um, I will not infrequently see someone who is eight or so. And mom is concerned that she is experiencing precocious puberty and What I then end up doing is really explaining that at age eight, it may be a little earlier than some of her peers, but it really doesn't meet the definition of precocious puberty. So I don't see very many of these girls, particularly the really younger girls um, referred to me directly. Um, But so I see the sort of the six to eight year olds and in that age group, most of the time the cause is is idiopathic. We don't have a specific cause. Um, there are no symptoms that go along with it other than the uh, early signs of, of puberty. And if parents are really focused on height, I have one family that I'm thinking about in particular where um, the parents are just so very, very focused on how tall their daughter is going to be. And that really is the child that I would refer to pediatric endocrine to discuss the benefits uh, versus risks of GnRH suppression. Um, while I can say to that individual that there's not a whole lot of benefit for that six to eight-year-old in in suppressing uh, pubertal development with um, uh, GnRH analogs, with um, I think the the pediatric endocrinologist, um, their statements to that effect may carry a little bit more weight. So if that really is a focus and the parents are really concerned about it, I will refer that child.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. And on a a similar note, I sometimes feel like I see the consults kind of coming back after they've gone through pediatric endocrine and they want a second opinion because they feel you know, concerned if the child is eight or eight and a half and and they've been sort of reassured by pediatric endocrine and just want, you know, yet another kind of input. So Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes we go back and forth just making everybody um, get (laughs) on the same page. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then I think the author made some really great clinical points that a lot of times we see these girls um, and, you know, they may have seen several people before they've been to our consult service and, um, you know they're sort of missing the bone age, but then they also have lots and lots of other labs uh, ordered already. Um, what do you think? Has that been your experience too?
1: It it has been the one that I will always comment on to a resident who is with me is measurements of serum progesterone. I mean, we're not even trying to document ovulation in older <laughs> teens who are monarchical at an appropriate age, and so that particular lab is not really going to be helpful to us. Um, so yes, these kids get <laughs> too many labs or the wrong labs done. And uh, I think Dr. Oigstrom does a, a good job of making an argument for the importance of bone age. She also makes the point that, that if the bone age has been done, the pediatric endocrinologists actually read those films themselves. They actually right. like to look at the images and and uh, they will, will uh, de- make their own determination. So having a copy of the images can be really important.
0: Right, it made me think of us in our MRIs. You know, yes. we, yep. <laughs> like show me the MRI, I don't want the reading. So yep. I, I thought, and she did sort of reiterate, like bring it on a disc or in the cloud or somewhere Absolutely. so I can look it up myself. So I like yep. that. I think that just reiterates the importance of bone age too. Cause I think that's definitely underutilized for these girls. Um, and then I know that you and I have talked before, and, and this is definitely a part of our general practice, no doubt, is this um, necessity for calm reassurance in girls with central precocious puberty who are over eight. Um, yeah, I mean, can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Oh, I I just love the phrase. I, I it, it's it's definitely a part of our skill set. I do it multiple times a day. I I think I really am a subspecialist in calm reassurance. So, uh, but you know, we can say with authority and and that reassurance can mean a lot to a family so I'm not belittling in any way the importance of that reassurance and reassurance done in a a calm way sometimes who's doing the reassuring as you say can make a difference and, (laughs) and the primary clinician may not be able to uh, be as effective with their reassurance as we, as a, a subspecialist can, and and similarly back and forth between peds and and, and us.
0: Right. So, yeah. And I think oftentimes just checking back in, you know, the follow-up visit, yep. you know, most of the times maybe isn't imperative and it's not necessarily part of the workflow, but I think that, I think gives them the reassurance that we're, you know, we're here to check back in and we'll see how things progress. And I've definitely found that a tactic over the years that helps with, our subspecialty of reassurance. Good point. <laughs> um, and then the other thing she does a nice job of, which I think it's, it's always on our tests and on our ABOG uh, new uh, tests for, for specialized, uh, what are we, specialized focused practice, um, is talking about McCune-Albright syndrome. So I think that's just, just a great uh, thing to comment. And she highlights that in her article a little bit. What's been your experience seeing this in, in practice?
1: It's an interesting thing because I, I I usually, at one point in my career, I can remember thinking, well, a child is not going to get to me if they have multiple cafe au lait spots. Somebody would have paid attention to that somewhere along the line in primary care or otherwise. But I really have been the first one to make the diagnosis if there are cafe au lait spots and, and refer to our genetics people. Um, and that's helpful. And there are Tests that will will confirm a diagnosis of McCune Albright, but I have several girls in my practice right now with recurrent ovarian cysts and even episodes of bleeding, and a couple of them have had negative testing. And I, you know, we keep sending them back to genetics, and they say, "Well, it sure looks and smells like McCune Albright, but we can't absolutely confirm it." And and one of those girls, the peripheral precocious puberty like McCune Albright moves into or becomes central precocious puberty. So you really are kind of triggering an early puberty, uh, uh, central precocious puberty. And it's, it can be really hard to manage. So, uh, you know, I think a multidisciplinary approach
0: can be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had similar experiences with genetics where they're super engaged and want to be helpful but they can't I mean we just have limited knowledge at this point of all the different um, genetic diagnoses, so I think it's tricky yep. um, and then she talks on kind of an interesting point I think certainly for us in Northern California um, about exogenous estrogen exposure leading to per- peripheral precocious puberty um, she alluded to things obvious you know like taking your mom's estrogen um, but also like exuberant use of tea tree oil and lavender so um,
1: <laughs> I have not actually seen this in my practice, um, but after reading about tea tree oil and lavender oil um, in the notes of my colleagues in pediatric endocrinology, I have become aware and uh, am, am a little sensitized to it now. Have you seen it in any of your patients?
0: No, I haven't. I We had a patient in the um, Bay Area who they felt had it from the too much tea tree oil. Uh-huh. So I think they were just using it on her vulva for irritation. And it was sort of part of the workup. And they had her stop. And things got better clinically. So I thought it was kind of an interesting. A real thing. Something to keep in mind. I mean, yep. there's all these exogenous things out there. And we never know. And I think sometimes people feel like more is better. So maybe... That's the the more was the exuberant use she referred to, <laughs> for sure. But <laughs>
1: but as well, the the assumption that families have if they can buy something over the counter that it's safe,
0: right? And it may not always right. not, 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 not always, always the case. No. That's true. All right, we're going to move on to our uh, next article titled "Sexting and Young Ado- uh, Sorry, sexting and young adolescents associations with sexual abuse and intimate partner violence. And it's by Kanani Tichen uh, and her group out of the Bronx in New York. Uh, I really like this study. It it looked at sexting by young adolescents and its associations with adverse life experiences, um, specifically looking at exploitative or violent sexual relationships. So uh, their study recruited over 500, like 550 teens to be precise, aged 14 to 17, 65% were girls, and 37% were boys. Um, They came from clinics associated with a very urban children's hospital um, that was associated with low resource and uh, high poverty poverty population. Um, So I think before we start our discussion, it's probably important that we elaborate on what is a sext. So I'll leave you to define that in the study.
1: <laughs> so the authors were um, described really operationally what they ask and they described it to teens as a sexually suggestive or naked picture of yourself to another person through text or email. So having sent such or being asked to send such. And uh, this is just to me a, a really important article. Um, as you say, it comes from Children's Hospital at Montefiore, Uh, Susan Coupe is the senior author and I I just have to say um, one of the reasons I love doing what I do is that I learn with every issue and this just opened my eyes to an issue that I hadn't been thinking about um, and uh, they did just an um, an amazing job, uh, really large numbers, uh, just a, a
0: fabulous study. It is. And so um, let's talk about what they found. It was very, I thought it was very interesting. And I think it absolutely changes the way I think about um, talking to patients about social media and texting and sexting. Um, So they found that 24% of girls and 20% of boys had ever sent a sext. Um, And then they, they did find, not surprisingly, that having ever sent a sext was associated with a history of being sexually active Or more importantly, and this is where I think it it surprised me a bit, um, of being associated with a history of sexual abuse, intimate partner violence, um, marijuana, cannabis use, drug use, running away from home, trading anything for sex, and certainly a positive screening for depression. Um, So, you know, what surprised you about this? I, I just had no idea it would be associated with so many detrimental things.
1: Well, me neither and i just hadn't thought about screening and so that's that really to me is is important with uh, these associations with really adverse um kinds of of past events really leading me to to absolutely conclude that that i should be screening for it in my in my practice overall and uh, you know, the authors really sort of talk about sexting as a continuation of re-victimization
0: of kids who have been abused in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and sometimes I think about the uniqueness of our profession that in our taking care of teens, we really have to be aware of what's going on in the world. Like I think about vaping now when I talk to my teens and I now I have to think about sexting and, you know, it it the, the practice is always changing. It's such a modern um a modern feel, since we're taking care of young people who are really involved in all of these scenarios.
1: I feel fortunate I mean, to be working with my colleagues in adolescent medicine, who are a little more on the front line um, for this than I am. I can remember the first patient, first time a patient talked to me about juuling, and I didn't know what that was. <laughs> so um, yeah, I knew I knew about vaping. I just hadn't heard heard it referred to as as juuling. <laughs> of course, and, and now we know about the company and what all they're doing to, to really kind of entice teens with their their flavors and such, but but sexting as well. So it takes our, this is from our colleagues in adolescent medicine and, and the front line uh, from an urban hospital. So right.
0: uh, really yeah, absolutely. important. Yeah, that sexting is something to consider as another marker um, to screen for IPV and sexual abuse and trauma. And I, I know I recently... I think maybe it was even at NASPAG or our annual clinical meeting where they talked about, you know, asking girls, um, what's one of their strengths, like what's a superpower. That's a really great marker for depression or, you know, a red flag for concern if they don't have one or haven't thought of it. So it's sort of another thing to sort of add to our social history repertoire. Um,
1: Absolutely. Um, I, the, the last thing I want to say is just pointing to the guest editorial uh, that we have from dr ruth and i'm not sure how she pronounces her last name b-u-z-i um, and uh, she talks about sexting and internet use and really um, to our responsibility as PAG clinicians to initiate these discussions um, about the perils of of sexting uh, particularly middle adolescents aren't thinking so much about the consequences of their actions so they they are not typically thinking about the legal consequences or the, the damage to their reputation or really even the, the legacy of their digital footprint. So um, we need to, to help them to, uh, to understand that some of these things um,
0: stay around for a while. Right, right. That's really good the point. All right, well, let's move on to our next article, number four, which is titled, I know this is your favorite, <laughs> or a topic that's near and dear to you, maybe not your all-time favorite, um, but documentation of sexual menstrual histories for adolescent, adolescent patients in the inpatient, so that was kind of unique, uh, inpatient setting by Dr. Paris Stowers and Karen Thielen. Uh, and this was another New York study, this was done in Syracuse. And basically, they did a, a sort of an outline of in a, dif- in a different perspective, looking at the frequency of menstrual history and sexual history documentation in the inpatient chart. So, they did a, a retrospective chart review of 307 women, so another large review, aged 11 to 18, and looked at the ones uh, that were specifically admitted to the emergency room over a seventh month period. Um, so, I don't necessarily want to ruin the punchline so people will read this article. Um, but I think I always assume, oh, you know, they always have a pregnancy test if they're of that age. and That's always their main focus. Um, what did you think about the findings in this study? Well, thoughts.
1: <laughs> bottom bottom line is um, there is room for improvement. How about that? Okay. Yeah. Um, I was not surprised. Um, and uh, as as you say, this is this is one of my issues. Um, the residents that work with me. Um, I know that I'm really a stickler for identifying information and, and some might even really describe me as a tyrant about it because I, I really insist that when a resident presents a patient to me that they give me a number of specific elements of her history right up front as identifying information so that I can think logically about the problem Um, So I ask for the patient's age, her gravidity and parity, the date of onset of her last period, whether or not she is sexually active, her method of contraception, and her chief concern. And the case that I make to the pediatrics residents, but to my GYN residents as well, is that. This information that I insist on right up front in the identification uh, really informs how I think about the patient and her diagnosis and her management and and I will say to the pediatrics resident, even if they are simply treating the patient's acne and prescribing doxycycline, they need to know that her last menstrual period wasn't eight weeks ago, and they need to know that she isn't pregnant so I think explained in that way. I'm really saying this is what you need to know about every female adolescent for you to be able to take good care of them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is probably something that does need to be sort of ingrained in the medical school level. So residents teaching medical students, fellows teaching residents, and then all of us working with residents and even young colleagues. I mean, certainly young colleagues in the emergency room, July is always very different than any other month of the year, I feel like too. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, do you have any thoughts or on how we can improve this like chart wise or you know across the board wise?
1: Well, you know, that one one uh, critique of a study like this is just because you didn't find it in the medical record doesn't mean it wasn't asked. And of course, the standard historical reply to this is if it isn't in the medical record, it didn't happen so (laughs) that's um, true that's of course facetious but i think there there may be some of that in terms of of documentation um but i i really um you know i just say just do it (laughs) nike Nike says uh, it just is so (laughs) critical um, to our taking good care of patients and it really does inform how we think about problems i mean i I can't tell you how many times i've made the point related to for example a a teen who comes in with pain related to potentially to an ovarian cyst and of course the differential is torsion or is this a um, pain from a corpus lute bleeding into a corpus luteum or a ruptured corpus luteum and and the menstrual history there is just critically important and that's the piece of it that we as gynecologists uh, know that pain uh, occurs in the context of the menstrual cycle so it's it's just critically important and and this is not an earth-shaking study but it does illustrate that we can improve
0: right and that i mean that sort of resonates with the study findings in two ways number one Uh, Patients who were admitted to a surgical service actually had the least documentation of their menstrual history. Yes. And those admitted to the GYN, or at least had a GYN consultation, actually had a much, much higher assessment of their menstrual history and much more detail, which I think speaks to us having it both embedded in our brains and embedded in our notes. So I think we, you know, we have sort of more formulaic notes to include these details, whereas the surgical services, um, you know, just have a different structure. So I think sometimes working with our medical records, just our HMPs can even help, um, you know, allude to this more important information in our young girls too. So I thought it was, a, it was an interesting study and sort of speaks to a weakness that we all recognize. Um, okay, and then the, so the next study, um, so totally switching gears back to endocrine world, uh, is titled The Efficacy of Long-Term Estrogen Replacement Therapy in Turner Syndrome Women, with premature ovarian insufficiency. And this was uh, done in Seoul, Korea with Dr. Song uh, and their team. So um, sort of a different perspective, but really interesting study. Uh, So their goal was to evaluate the efficacy of long-term estrogen replacement therapy in uterine development and bone marrow density in patients with Turners and premature ovarian insufficiency. So they grouped 37 Turner patients according to their ovarian function status. So really interesting. So 32 of these girls had premature ovarian insufficiency, and then five of them had intact ovarian function. And so that was their control group, and all of them had Turner's syndrome. And then they did a really long review over um, the years January 1995 through May 2018. And these patients were really followed for at least over nine years with a median of nine. And then they looked at uterine length uh, uterine AP fundal diameter, and then bone marrow density. So it, it also wasn't super surprising that the estrogen replacement therapy improved, you know, all those parameters. Um, so I I think it was interesting. What, what do you kind of think were the the strengths of this study?
1: Well, as you, as you point out the uh, length of follow-up, I think is, is a real strength. And so I think that's, that's something important. Um, I really enjoyed seeing, uh, and thought it was important to see that there really was a clear increase in volume. Um, I have uh, one mother of a patient with POI who is just focused on uterine volume to the exclusion of everything else related to her daughter's um, POI. And uh, so really good to see that, that there is, is growth of the uterus as, as would be expected, but just documenting it well.
0: Right and i just always like these articles that remind us that it's not premature ovarian failure it's premature ovarian insufficiency i just i think the the language matters and so i i still find a lot of um sort of younger or out of our specialty folks talking about failure um and i just i don't know i think i like the insufficiency terminology better so it's nice to see it when it's in an article in a title it, it's, it is
1: a good point that, that they talk about POI. Um, I did wonder their group that they they described as having intact ovarian function. It's not entirely clear how intact their ovarian function was. They may have been having regular cycles, but but that was one um, critique that I had of of wondering that this is their
0: control group.
1: And I'm not sure that we can really
0: assume
1: that their ovarian function was quote unquote normal.
0: Right. So it might even been um, even a a more striking difference if we used patients who had no ovarian insufficiency at all, you know, were Turner syndrome because then it would be even more, um, maybe we've sort of more marker of difference. I don't know. That would have been, that would have been an interesting would have been interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. So number six is another fun article. I liked, I think this one of the, the bunch was one of my favorites, just because I, I like this topic and I thought it was really well done. I'm in another international study. So this is menstrual suppression in pediatric and adolescent patients with disabilities ranging from developmental to acquired conditions a population study in an Australian quaternary pediatric and adolescent gynecology service from January 2005 to December 2005. So this was from uh, Dr. Leakes uh, and their group out of Queensland, Australia. So we've got a whole international journal this month. Um, And what they did is they did a retrospective uh, review of notes over their service over a decade um, and reviewed almost 70 adolescents who presented to their PAG service Actually, requesting menstrual suppression. And they specifically looked at three methods the combined oral hormonal contraceptive pills, uh, Depo Provera, and then the Mirena IUD. And so their findings, you know, were not surprising uh, that 59 out of 68 girls or almost 90% achieved menstrual suppression. Uh, it was surprising to me that over 50% were suppressed after their initial visit. I don't they didn't really specify the timeline upon suppression, but it took one visit. Um, I think the interesting part, and I know that um, you'll want to talk about, um, is the issue of time, like how long um, it took to get that menstrual suppression to be successful. Um, So I think one of the things they definitely uh, commented on is that maybe combined hormonal, hormonal contraceptive pills may not be the top tier and best option, even though it frequently is the one used first. Um, And we're just back to the patience, 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 and reassurance. Um, So do you have thoughts on that, which I know you do? (laughs) I
1: I do, of course, (laughs) as I do on many things. Um, Yeah, I I often say to to families that um, menstrual suppression is not like turning on or off the tap, that we can't um, wave our magic wand and make it happen right away, and that with really the the statistics say that with all of our options for suppression, it does take some time. So here's where our calm reassurance comes in again and, and be patient um, that with time, virtually everybody or a very high percentage gets to that, that suppression or something that, that is improved over time. Um, I do think one of their concerns about using a combined Hormonal options as an initial option is that it might lead to earlier closure of the epiphyses and thus a decrease in linear height. And I I really pretty carefully. And this is a a popular view among pediatric endocrinologists as well that oral contraceptives very easily lead to closure of the epiphyses and and a decrease in ultimate height. And I just would say the evidence is not there. There's a systematic review of this issue related to height published in 2012. Um, there, There's our historic evidence and um, the experience of the attempts. And, and I find this absolutely fascinating from the 1950s and early 60s, when it was thought that girls could be too tall so in that over that period of time, the thoughts were, well, we will give these girls high-dose estrogen or estrogen to close their epiphyses and they won't be so tall. And multiple studies, and if you really go back and look at these studies, some even from earlier than the 50s, um, they were using whopping doses of estrogen and weren't very successful. So multiple times the dosing that is in our current oral contraceptive pills. So the idea that our current pills will be effective in closing the epiphyses, I think, is is really incorrect.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right. I think um, pediatricians certainly have learned that and feel strongly about that because that's definitely something I get questions and consults about. And you know, the birth control pills, right, of the fifties and sixties were like 150 micrograms. You know, compared to our 20 to 35 you know sometimes 50 rarely today that we use it's interesting
1: and, and in the attempts to to uh, make girls not so tall were not even using the we're not using birth control pills they were using just estrogens and were using them in as i say really high doses
0: that's so interesting yeah so that's where kind of historical experience factors into sort of this thinking too um, and then, what did you feel like there were any limitations in this study? I definitely, I definitely had one. I thought of. I know you, you must have too. Um, I kind of was surprised about almost... about the weight. Their BMI average was much lower. Clearly, this was not uh. a U.S. study, um, so their <laughs> their <laughs> BMI was twenty average or median BMI uh, was twenty one point seven. That is so true. I think that is true. That's been my that has not been my experience with my population. So I, I think that, that might have been interesting to sort of see the breakdown in that factor as well. Um, yeah. so in a nutshell, they really reiterate with kind of a authoritative voice that really Depo Provera and the Moreno Morena, Moreno, Morena IUD should be considered first line and really think about counseling that suppression can be achieved, you know, closer to the twelve year mark than 12-month mark than the three-month mark or something like that, three to four months. Right. Um, absolutely.
1: Uh, you know, one, one thing I would say uh, in commenting, I'm a, I'm a real proponent of the levonorgestrel IUD uh, for this population. We, this, the study we reported from Cincinnati Children's um, showed really um, good effect in this population. So I am a big proponent families may not be ready after first counseling to go there with an IUD. And uh, so the option of starting with something, and I, I would say in, in my patients, the, the biggest first choice is, is Depo-Provera. Um, and, um, but then thinking about the option of switching, um, even after they've achieved amenorrhea with Depo-Medroxyprogesterone acetate, um and especially in this population of kids many of them will have an anesthetic for something else so an MRI of whatever and they need an anesthetic for that or some other procedure where we can combine an IUD insertion with the other procedure right. uh, is something that the families really appreciate and uh, can be efficient right, in terms of time. So that's, that's something that, that when I see these families in follow-up, especially the ones who are, who are um, happy with the, the uh, Depo-Provera um, and have achieved amenorrhea, but um who we, we do need to still remind them of the potential effects on bone and the idea that, that they could then switch over to the liver and gestural IUD. Right.
0: And just on the topic of bone. So what, like, what is your counseling on that? I'm I'm curious too how you sort of reassure and yet advise, you know? So, um, you know,
1: we start, what I what I would say is is that we talk about bone density and depomadroxy medroxyprogesterone acetate. That um, basically uh, studies do show that that girls do not achieve or accrete bone at the pace that they would if they were not using the hormonal contraceptive. Um, I I do offer some reassurance in that the studies don't really correlate use of Depo Provera with Uh, increase in fractures so that is somewhat reassuring but some of these girls have other factors that put their bone density at risk they may not be uh, weight-bearing or mobile um, so so we worry about that so um you know, I will at every follow-up visit, and, and I see these kids yearly at each of those yearly visits, we'll discuss again the risk versus benefits, and do they want to think about the option of switching over to the levonorgestrel right, IUD. Right,
0: right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I like that counseling. And I think that's, you know, that comes up so much in practice. It's such a good thing to think about and give options. And I think IUDs are becoming more and more acceptable and moms are getting them and sisters are getting them. And I think that helps. It's, it's refreshing. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, our last but not least um, is the risk factors for endometrial cancer or hyperplasia in adolescence and uh, women 25 years or younger. Well, that's the end of our podcast. Thank you for joining us. And we look forward to recording a new podcast for you next month. Happy New Year.